0: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
1: May I help you? I'm in sad shape. Wait a minute. Before you begin, I must ask that you pay in advance. Five cents, please. Boy, what a sound. How I love you. That beautiful sound of cold, hard cash. That beautiful, beautiful sound. nickels nickel, snickles. That beautiful sound of plinking nickel. All right, now. What seems to be your trouble? I feel depressed. I know I should be happy, but I'm not. Well, as they say on TV... The mere fact that you realize you need help indicates that you are not too far gone. I think we better pinpoint your fears. If we can find out what you're afraid of, we can label it. Are you afraid of responsibility? If you are, then you have hypongiophobia. I don't think that's quite it. How about cats? If you're afraid of cats, you have alerophasia. Well, sort of, but I'm not sure. Are you afraid of staircases? If you are, then you have climacophobia. Maybe you have thalassophobia, this is fear of the ocean. Or chephorobia, which is the fear of crossing bridges. Or maybe you have pantophobia. Do you think you have pantophobia? What's pantophobia? The fear of everything. That's it! Actually, Lucy, my trouble is Christmas. I just don't understand it. Instead of feeling happy, I feel sort of let down. You need involvement. You need to get involved in some real Christmas project. How would you like to be the director of our Christmas play? Me? You want me to be the director of the Christmas play? Sure, Charlie Brown. We need a director. You need involvement. We've got a shepherd, musicians, animals, everyone you need. We've even got a Christmas queen. I don't know anything about directing a Christmas play. Don't worry. I'll be there to help you. I'll meet you at the auditorium. Incidentally, I know how you feel about all this Christmas business, getting depressed and all that. It happens to me every year. I never get what I really want. I always get a lot of stupid toys or a bicycle or clothes or something like that. What is it you want? Real estate. There must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents, and sending Christmas cards, and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Among the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest.
2: Fashion Radio for a new generation. The Times Summer Program. The Time Summer The Time Summer The Tom
3: show. Oh, yeah. hey good morning everybody welcome to the show I'm Tom Sumner and uh, we opened up with a little bit of uh Charlie Brown Christmas uh, with some excerpts from the Charlie Brown Christmas, My one of my favorite Christmas things. No, we're not doing Christmas in September. Um, that's actually in honor of the fact that our first guest on today's show is the son of uh, Charlie Brown creator, uh, Charles Schultz. His name is Monty Schultz. He has a new novel which reads like Hunger Games for Adults. Um... It's called Metropolis, and we're going to talk about that with him in just a few minutes. But before, uh, before we talk with Monty, um, we're going to talk with B.B. Alston, who is a uh, New York Times bestseller of uh, Amari and the Knight Brothers. He's got a sequel to that called Amari and the Great Game. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk with uh, 86-year-old Force of Nature about her book, which is uh, kind of a memoir of sorts, called Force of Nature, by Giselle Huff, And we're also going to talk with, uh, he's been a guest on the show many times, Tom Hartman is his name. And uh, he has a series of books uh, that are selling very well. They're short, easy to read books, but on a variety of subjects. They're called The Hidden History of whatever that particular uh, edition is uh, about. In this particular case, the new one coming out is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. We're going to talk about what that is and what it means and all that good kind of stuff when, um, when we talk with Tom Hartman coming up in just a little bit. So we got a great show in store. Uh, In many ways this is our last edition of the Tom Sumner program. I will be on the air tomorrow. It will be live. But I'm opening up the phone lines here at uh, 810-339-8255. That's tomorrow, Friday, September 2nd from 9 a.m. to noon. The phone line will be open and if you'd like to call in, make some comments, you're welcome to do that. I don't think we're gonna get a lot of calls because of the time of day it is and uh, so with that in mind I'm going to spend the day uh, the three hours playing music from local artists who have been on the show we're gonna hear some music that was recorded live on the show we're going to hear some of their recorded music I'm going to reminisce a little bit about some of the uh, some of the musicians that uh, made appearances on the show and uh, and then we'll take calls if they come in but uh, if not I will get to play DJ on my last day and just spin records there'll be some jazz there'll be some country there'll be some indie music probably a couple of rap tunes There's going to be a pretty good variety of uh, local music, and as I've said before, the talent pool in and from the surrounding area is as good as any you're going to find. Monty Schultz, up next. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is... um the son of the late cartoonist Charles Schultz, creator of Charlie Brown and the Rest of the Peanuts. Gang. Um, but he is uh, also a um, successful novelist. He uh, wrote his first novel, uh, Down by the River, in 1990. He spent uh, the next 12 years writing a novel about the jazz age because he is also a composer, songwriter, and producer. His most recent album is titled Seraphonium. And uh, in 2010, he became the owner of the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, and we're going to talk with him about his latest book uh, called Metropolis. Um, His name is Monty Schultz. He joins me by phone. Monty, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning to you. I I, I got to ask you, Monty. Um, I'm you know I'm always fascinated by the creative process and and what different writers do and how they work. But you walked away from this book for about fifteen years. Um, what was what was going on there?
4: Uh, I I'd written about fifty pages of it of Metropolis, and I what I couldn't figure out is how my Main character, the narrative, first-person narrative of Julian Bream, who was a college senior in the book at Regency College, could be studying the Greeks and the Romans and even James Joyce in a fictional republic. I just, for some reason, that sort of stumped <laughs> me. I couldn't figure out how, how that could happen, and and then also I was confused. I had no clear idea about the geography of the book, like where it was actually taking place. Uh, so it just, that, that and a couple other problems sort of stumped me and I just went away from it. Plus I think, uh, and that was 2003 and I was working on, uh, finalizing and publishing the, uh, the books connected to my jazz age novel, Crossing Eden and a, and a mystery, a, a murder mystery, uh, crime novel called naughty. So I just, I don't know. I just, I put it on the back and didn't come back to it until 2019, when I figured out how to solve those problems.
3: Well, you would never have admitted, I wouldn't think um, that you had writer's block. <laughs> no, because I, I wasn't.
4: Yeah, no, no, no. I didn't have writer's block because I was doing other things. And the other the other thing is that when I finished and published *The Crossing Eden*, which was the the jazz age novel. Uh, in 2016, I had just been writing for so long, I wanted to do something different. So through that time period, I started doing music. And uh, going back to songwriting, which is where I started as a writer when I was 20, 21 years old, anyhow. So uh, I did. I just did music for six years. And then I decided that music uh, it just cost a lot of money to record songs and pay people and whatever. And so... Uh, and, and also, music wasn't filling my days. And I was wondering, so what, how am I spending my days? How, how, when, when was the last time my days were full? And I realized, well, you know, sorry, it had to do with, it was when you were writing, sitting in front of the computer every day. <laughs> so I decided I needed to go back to books. So I was, I was working on another book called uh, Penny Dreams, uh, set in the 30s. And then I, and I went to Hawaii in 2019. I brought Penny Dreams with me on my computer. And I still, of course, had Metropolis. And I figured out the Republic is probably set in France, and uh, Julian can study the Greeks and the Romans because, as Ray Bradbury said, used to quote, I say it so. And uh, that summer, though, uh, Penny Dreams kind of faded away, and I picked up Metropolis just where I'd left off in 2003 and then wrote the entire book in nine months.
3: Well, I put that little writer's block reference in there because of something your dad once said, that only amateurs get writer's block, professionals can't afford it. Yeah, he told me that.
4: Uh, we were talking on the phone. <laughs> That's where that quote comes from, uh, him telling me. Um, and, and it's absolutely true because if you're a columnist or you're a cartoonist, uh, or you're a writer, a novelist on a contract, you can't have a writer's block. You just, like Dad had to have, um, had to have a daily strip six days a week and a Sunday, every week, every wow. week, every week. And so I tell people, my opinion is that the so-called writer's block is one of two things. It's either the writer being lazy or afraid of writing something bad. And I really believe that anything you put on a page is better than nothing. Well, there's... And if you write a page or two or three and it's not very good, you're going to find something out of it that's worth doing or at least understand that you're going in the wrong direction.
3: There's a, there's so, a great the quote matter. from uh, uh, Stephen King who was asked in an interview, unfortunately it wasn't one of my interviews, but I, I happened to hear an interview with Stephen King, and they asked him, uh, do you write to a muse or to a schedule? And he says, oh, always to the muse. But fortunately the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's kind of true. I think that if you, if you write all the time, you develop a rhythm to it and uh, some days it can be better than others, some days more profitable than others. When I wrote, uh, what I did to write Metropolis was I set up a schedule that I'd never tried before. I, ha- I forced myself to write at least one page, at least one page every morning before I ate or drank anything. Wow. So, really? and sometimes uh, I wrote that page in uh, 10 minutes. Other times it took me two hours. Two hours, three hours to write that page, wherein I became extremely hungry and visions of a ham sandwich danced before my <laughs> eyes. <just right laughs> the the page. And then, and then in the afternoon, I'm free to write, you know, another page, two or three or four. And I kept that schedule up for nine months. I only missed three days when I was out of town. That was it. I wrote uh, Thanksgiving morning and Christmas morning and New Year's morning, and uh, I, I, I never, I, I never failed. It was, and it was. Uh, Some warnings were difficult, but still I got it done, and that's what got me through a 668-page novel in nine months.
3: More with author Monty Schultz straight ahead. Hello
4: out there, everybody. It's
3: me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R.
4: That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program
5: on account of because he's so bouncy. (laughs) woo hoo hoo
8: and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org.
5: Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community.
3: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author Monty Schultz straight ahead. Can you, um, so we have a, a little sense of how difficult it might've been, um, at, at, at different times to write this book. Uh, can you give us a little synopsis of, of the book and explain a little bit about what the story is?
4: So, uh, Metropolis is the story about a, a society, a failing society plagued by crime and feeble-mindedness, they thought, and, uh. Uh, sickness and trying to figure out uh, these, the, deciding that these sort of dregs of society, as they perceive them, are dragging the society down. So so it's so embr- it's a
3: true life story. <laughs> exactly.
4: exactly. <laughs> so what they decide is that uh, they embrace the idea of eugenics, which was invented by a guy named uh, Francis J. Galton in Britain. In the late 19th century, uh, eugenics is a word, uh, he invented the word, uh, a Greek word essentially he invented called uh, meaning well-born. And in Britain, the idea was to mate the best people and have them carry society forward, develop, uh, you know, improve the race, improve the race, improve the race. Uh, but what my, my society decided to do, and how eugenics was embraced in the United States, was to get rid of the worst people. And so in my society, they round up uh, a million people in in, the, in some of the districts of the metropolis and put them on a train and empty the city of them, send them off into the hinterlands and hope they die. And then 40 years later, they decide they want that land out there where they'd sent the people. And so they start a war, and the war has been going on for 60 years. And my character, Julian, is born into this world, where an endless war, and uh, the heat. So he, he ends up uh, falling in love with a, a bohemian revolutionary named Nina Rinaldi and gets drawn into the web of this and the mystery of the whole thing. Something's going on. Some plans were stolen. They don't know what the plans are, and, and, but, but the security director is looking for this guy named Peter Draxler. So my character suddenly is, is sort of dragged out of college into the mystery of his own world, his own republic, and what happens.
3: What did you settle on for time and place?
4: Well, okay, what I figured out was <laughs> that the book, as we would know it, is actually set in would be set in France and then so then and then the the, the provinces to the east would be what we would know as Germany and then Eastern Europe, and then and then farther on Russia. Um, and the time, if you look at the the technology in the book, it would be roughly corresponding to our time around World War One. Uh, so it has that feel. It doesn't say it. They have their own geography. I mean, they have their own chronology, but uh, that's, that's really what it was. So that, that's yeah. interesting,
3: Monty, because a lot of times uh, when there's somewhat of a dystopian theme, it's it's usually futuristic,
4: right? So this is not. Um, and my publisher sort of thinks of the book as being science fiction. I go, it's not science fiction. Just well, they have technology, yeah, but they're just a little different from ours, and the timing is different. So they are just developing what they call radio vision and video scopes. Uh, so, uh, but but uh, um, those technologies, technology, if you ran history forward, technologies would develop at different rates. They wouldn't be exactly the same. Uh, what, what this is, so a friend of mine um, who teaches at UC Santa Barbara, when I described the book to him while he was writing it, he said, oh, it's as though history bifurcated 1,500 years ago. And that's essentially the idea of this: what happened. So so history changed into this republic. Uh, so that's kind of the way to look. That's why it's, the book, when you read it, it seems like us, but it's different. It's a little different. A lot of food's the same. Cars are different. Uh, the way that people talk is different. They do kind of talk a little bit like like around the time of World War One, um, in that period. But it's just it's similar but
3: different. You know, I, I I can't help wondering what it was like for you growing up in the world somewhat created by your dad when he created Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang. I. I know that I grew up reading and and watching the uh, animated specials with the music by Vince Guaraldi, and um, my kids grew up with that. A friend of mine had wallpapered a a small bathroom in their home with strips from Peanuts. And, you know, I, I just have to wonder what it was like growing up in that, in that environment, it it must have seemed like Charlie Brown was your brother.
4: Uh, actually, <laughs> no. No, it's not true because, um, first of all, Peanuts was just something my dad did. I didn't read the strip of the newspaper. He would, when, when they were collected in books, Peanuts, More Peanuts, Good Grief, More Peanuts, and I think the next one was Snoopy, um, I, he would bring the book home, they would show up, they would be published, and he and he would give them to us, and I would sit down and read the whole thing. Uh, it's just something my dad did. Uh, Peanuts became really popular and famous in the culture with the appearance of three things, and they all appeared within just a, a handful of years. Um, Happiness is a warm puppy uh, by ter- by determined productions. That little that little book, Happiness is a warm puppy. Then um, the the musical and stage play, the musical um, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and then A Charlie Brown Christmas. Those things, those three, the book, the musical, and the TV show is what bumped Peanuts into the larger culture. And then what everybody knows is Peanuts everywhere. But but when we were growing up, it wasn't like that. He was just my dad. And I was actually surprised in fifth grade when one of my classmates uh, said he knew about, he he, he Red stripper knew about Charlie Brown and Snoopy. I didn't think anybody knew about it right because it wasn't it just wasn't it just wasn't everywhere like like we seem to know of it now, so I did not grow up into this umbrella of the fame of uh peanuts. It's just what my dad did i <sighs> it,
3: i it's it, i I'm fascinated by that i I had a chance to talk with um Ann Serling rod Serling's daughter uh-huh. and she had never seen an episode of Twilight Zone until she was well into her adulthood.
4: Huh. huh that's interesting.
3: And she said, you know, that, that her dad, the way she described him, you know, wrestling on the floor with the kids and the dog and the cardigan sweater and all that, he, he sounded more oh. like, um, <laughs> like like Ward Cleaver. <laughs> than Rod Serling, <laughs> than the Rod Serling we all yeah. know, was it like yeah. that with your dad? Was he just dad? He wasn't the guy who created Charlie Brown, but but he was just dad.
4: Yeah, exactly. uh Dad and I would go out and play baseball, you know, playing catch and play little games <laughs> with a plastic baseball, and you know, pitching, and hitting, and uh, you didn't
3: let him hold the football for you though.
4: Uh no, that was a joke. You know, it's kind of funny because uh, the first time that was the 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 um football was held was held by Violet, not uh, mm. not Lucy. Yeah, and uh, and 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 in that original neighborhood, you know, everyone thinks of a Charlie Brown as a lovable loser. Actually, in the first books, Charlie Brown was sort of king of the neighborhood, and his and his contemporaries, his friends were Shirley and Patty, and so they're all the same age. And then Violet came into the neighborhood, and she kind of. She and Patty kind of vied for, for Charlie Brown's affection. But then in, in that little neighborhood, right, in that little neighborhood, which we have, when I read those strips, it reminds me of being a kid. Uh, then Lucy came, this little girl Lucy, with her tiny brother uh, Linus, and then there was another kid down the block, a little kid named Schroeder, who could play the piano. And then Charlie. And then what happened in the strip is, uh, I, I, I reminded Dad of this, then Patty, not Patty, but Patty, and Shermie seemed to leave as though their family packed up and left the neighborhood, leaving Charlie Brown and Violet as well, leaving Charlie Brown with these young kids he didn't really relate to, and then he became sort of picked on and whatever. But the early strip, and the early idea of it was different, and uh, and that's how I remember Dad. Dad was just he was just involved with our lives, just involved with our lives, and just a regular like you say he was just a regular dad, and uh, and this cartooning is just something he did. Uh, it seemed like a sidelight to being a dad, right? Just, uh,
3: <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. so oh. he paid the bills, I guess.
3: Did, um, just out of curiosity, did your dad work from home?
4: Yes, yes, yes. He always, uh, but it was funny because when I was writing, he told me, Monty, you have to have an office to go to, uh, <laughs> like like I office of property. But I always wrote in an office in my house, and I still have done that. So in a sense, I worked like Dad did. He, he But he, he is right that you have to go somewhere but i don't know what that actually means because he uh when we moved to california i i you know i don't know where he re- where he did the strip when we lived in minneapolis i just don't know i was too young i'm six years old when we moved to california but in california he had an office uh in our place and went to it you can be on the property and that's what i would do so but in my houses i've always just gone down to the office and closed the door and, and worked
3: well i think that's i i think that's the key monty is you know, I have an office, now a studio at home, um, but it is closed off. It is its own space, and I can come in, close the door, and I'm at work. I can leave and close the door, and I'm not at work. Right. And right. I, I think, think people that-, that do creative things, like like your writing and, and the strips that your dad produced on a daily basis, I, I think, that it takes up so much of your your thoughts that you have to be able to draw a line between being at work and not being at work. Sure,
4: sure. And uh, and you don't have to have uh, a room with a big view. That didn't really mean anything to me. When I first was writing Metropolis, I actually had a tiny room in my house here in Hawaii, and the closet, I, I, I had the, my desk set up in... Uh, at the entrance to a closet, a little tiny closet. So, so I'm actually staring into a closet while I'm writing. Somebody's saying, don't you want a better view? I said, the only view that matters is the one on the computer here. Okay, I don't need to be looking out a window. And then, and then even in, when I return to Santa Barbara, my, my office window looks out on the driveway. Hmm. So, And the computer actually blocks my view of the driveway anyway. People would arrive, but I didn't see them coming in because the computer's blocking it. That's all I really need. I need a place to go to, as Dad said, and I needed a computer. And, and I was able to, to do this writing schedule I described just like that. Uh, but you just have to settle down. You have to have the discipline and do it. And, 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 and the project has to be entertaining. So when writing Metropolis, it was, I I'd never had any difficulty writing it. I never had any blocks of any kind difficulty. The muse visited me, as Stephen King was pointing out, the muse visited me every single day, more so than any other book I've ever written. So it just and I made up and, and and by the way, I I literally made up Metropolis as I was writing it. I did had no outline, no plan except I knew where the book was going to end.
3: I had that. Uh, in, and, I had that in my notes, Monty, and I was going to ask you about that because, you know, some people will you know write to an outline, but then some stories almost tell themselves.
4: Yeah, I don't. Uh... My experience in Metropolis is really strange. Uh, for the Jazz Age novel uh, Crossing Eden, I was asked "Do I write by inspiration. i go, oh, my God, like 2% of that book was inspired. The rest of it was just me slogging away at it day after, <laughs> day, after day for a book. <laughs> Metropolis was literally like the muses were hovered around me, whispering in my ear constantly. I had It just all came out. Uh, I would go into sections. The book has four parts to it. Uh, metropolis the desolation in the garden of elysium and to a farther country and in those last three i had no idea what was going to happen i just literally wrote it forward and everything came to me just flowed out flowed out flowed out flowed out uh in a way that never has so i would say uh if if crossing eden was two percent inspired i would say metropolis was i don't know 98 percent inspiration so it just—I don't know. It was—it was a strange, very strange experience.
3: Did you did you think of it in terms of of story first and then cast it like like a movie, or did you have characters in mind and and then um, start coming up with the kinds of things that might happen to them or that they might do?
4: Well, the central characters,
3: the the initial group.
4: From the first chapter, Julian Bream, uh, my narrator, first-person narrator, um, his roommate, college roommate, Freddie Barron, then one of Freddie's friends, this Warren Rattlefinger, and his girlfriend, uh, um, Evelyn Haskins, Evie, all showed up at the beginning. And then Julian met Nina in the second chapter and some of his uh, housemates at the Thayer Hall. After that, and of course his father and his mother, um... The people would come, come. so those characters, and I don't remember how I made them up, because that was in 2003, right? 2002, (laughs) 2003. I don't remember how I made those characters up. After that, people just, like, characters would walk on stage, right? As I I (laughs) go through the book, they just would appear one after another. Um, I did meet this character named uh, Marco Grinnell. And I retrofit his name to somebody Julian meets when he goes to visit Nina for the first time. Uh, she's uh, Marco is yelling, is saying as Julian comes into the house, he's saying, Why did you bring? He, why did you bring him here? He's not. We, we we have rules. And she says, she turns to me and says, If we had rules, Marco, you'd be wearing a dress. So uh, when I first wrote it, Marco wasn't his wasn't that character's name, but I retrofit that to Marco and made him a, a bigger part of the book, and then he ends up becoming a big part of the book. But yeah, that's it. I, I kind of the characters just they would I would I would discover them as I was writing, uh, would, literally make them up.
3: This is another one of those chicken and the egg questions, kind of. Um, uh-huh. What happened first for you, Monty? Music or writing?
4: Um, so. Well, writing, in the sense that when I was in college and somehow music suddenly became interesting to me, the first thing I did was start rewriting lyrics to other songs. <laughs> um, that, that Rolling Stones song, Ruby Tuesday, for instance, I, I had the music in my head and I just rewrote lyrics to it to sort of get the idea. And then right away, I, I, I had a guitar. When I left Minnesota and went back to California again, I bought a guitar. Well, actually, I was playing my mom's guitar, that's right. And then I started writing my own music and then lyrics. Um, now when I write music, it's the opposite. The songs are all about music. Um, I make up a melody, write the whole entire melody, and then try to figure out what the song is going to be about. And in most cases, I've had the melody for a song for eight, ten months, in, in one case, uh, the, the melody for two and a half years before I figured out what the song was going to be about. Um, so there's no case of uh, picking up a guitar and saying, nah, I think I'm going to write a song about this or that. And, and it's because of writing my books. Because a book like Crossing Eden, which is a thousand-page novel, I, I just written about everything. I don't need to write a song about anything. So uh, although most writers think that I write the lyrics first, I've never written lyrics first. And, and uh, so it sort of flipped. Yeah, uh, music is about music, and writing is about writing
3: for me. Do you have a, a sense for where ideas come from, whether it's for music or lyrics or, or stories and characters? Um, I read widely,
4: which I've talked about when I teach at the Sunbar Writers Conference. I read very widely in a, many different kinds of writing uh, I read nonfiction too, but I also mostly fiction and popular fiction, literary fiction. I also read, still read poetry. Charles Bukowski and uh, 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 Allen Ginsberg and uh, Edgar Lee Masters, Carl Sandburg, my favorite writer. Um, and so, from reading, I would get ideas, uh, inspirations. On how to write, what to write. Uh, popular fiction helps me learn to pace and tell a story. Literary fiction makes me concentrate on making the language interesting. So I guess it's a grab bag of ideas. It's, they descend on me because I expose myself to so many different ideas.
3: Are there um, specific writers that, that have maybe influenced you in, in crafting your voice?
4: Sure. Carl Sandburg, first of all, when dad saw that I was writing lyrics, he had me read poetry. Carl Sandburg, his favorite poet, who became my favorite. Complete poems by Carl Sandburg. Uh, the the cadence of my sentences, the rhythm, is what I got from him. And also, then the inspiration for prose came from another one of dad's favorite, favorite writers, Thomas Wolfe, of Time in the River, mm-hmm. uh, The Great Path of Thomas Wolfe, and the introduction to uh, Look Homeward Angel and Of Time in the River. Um, so. I learned to write uh I learned to write like that but Thomas Wolfe was more complicated because nobody can write like Thomas Wolfe but when I discovered in graduate school Carson McCullers I saw how to combine that voice from Sandberg into prose which is the sort of lyricism in the language of Carson McCullers and then of course Truman Capote and then uh later on Cormac McCarthy and uh, Joan Didion from for, from nonfiction, uh, and it sort of bloomed outwards. Uh, all these influences on how to write.
3: My guest is uh, Monty Schultz. He is uh, Charles Schultz's son. Uh, Charles Schultz, of course, the uh, creator of uh, Charlie Brown, Peanuts, um, or um, as as I was growing up, our gang, <laughs> we yeah. kind of became known as. Um. And the book is uh, called Metropolis, just came out this month, and uh, it is a um, dystopian uh, tome, as it's described in my notes. I I think it's funny when people use that word. Um, Do you think of yourself as an author or a writer? Well, okay, the distinction
4: is, as I understand it, uh, once you've published, you're an author. Uh-huh. And again, I I understood this from German. I, I taught myself to speak German. So when I was in um, Switzerland and talking to friends of mine there, I said I'm a Schriftsteller, uh, which is the word for writer. They said, "No, you are uh, you are a Verfasser, which is author. Once you've written and published, you are a Verfasser. You're an author. So I guess I'm now an author. Uh, I think I think um, writing. Uh, I'm a writer." to continue being an author, right, writing is, uh, let's say, think about it like this, author is sort of static, right, and and writer is uh, fluid, right, we're writing, writing all the time, right, um, and, uh, an author can no longer be a writer if he or she stops writing, um, and a writer can be a writer without being author if he or she never publishes. So that's the distinction. So I guess I'm uh, Interesting. I'm still writing. I cut my finger really badly, my right, the final finger of my right hand, really badly about four months ago, and I've been working on the sequel to Metropolis called Undercity, and it's really difficult to type because uh, uh, it stings every time I touch the key. So I'm, I, have, I haven't been writing much in the last four months. It's just painful, but uh, I'll get back to it as soon as I can.
3: Well, I can't believe how fast the time has gone, Monty. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, and and you're a delight to talk to. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share?
4: Yeah, there are a couple of them. Uh, For Metropolis, the the best one to look at is a really good website. It's really fun. It's called metropolisthebook.com. MetropolisTheBook.com, super fun website, um, and done by Amy Phillips and helped with uh, Laura Hannafin. Then uh, I have a, I looked this up the other day, MontySchultzAuthor.com, which has uh, stuff from about Crossing and my music. Um, uh, I, I, I picked a name from called Seraphonium. S E R A. P-H-O-N-I-U-M. That has the music. Seraphonium.com. I think you can look it up. But I think the music is also on com. So that's the way to look it up. And well, a lot of,
3: Yeah, Monty, it's been a, an honor and a privilege to meet you and, and get a chance to talk with you a little bit. And thank you for sharing uh, this time with me and the listeners. And by all means, sir, keep up the good work.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
3: All right. Take care. <laughs>
4: Thanks very much. Okay, see ya.
3: okay, bye. That was uh, Monty Schultz. The book is Metropolis. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
2: The Tom Sumner program.com From the Tom Sumner
3: Hi, this is Joe Byte from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone.
5: This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to
2: go back to work, and I want to be able
7: to move around. It's a- visit with Michelle's mom the hug her and see her on her birthday. You
3: know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium
7: with a full stadium.
4: We've lost enough people
2: and we've suffered enough damage.
3: In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated.
4: I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible.
7: So we urge you to get vaccinated
3: when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part.
7: This is our
2: shot. Now it's up to you.
8: (laughs) Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again.
5: So soon. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickerson.
7: This day will go down in history as precedent-shattering. John Bickerson is smiling. Despite the lateness of the hour, the fact that he has had perhaps the hardest day of his life at the office, John Bickerson is smiling. Why? Tell us, John. Two weeks vacation with pay. Wait till I tell Blanche, brother, how I've longed for this. I'll sew myself into the bedsheets and sleep for ten days. John? Hello, Blanche. How is my beautiful wife? what would you like me to bring you a glass of milk and a cookie and here's a little present for you you look wonderful honey
0: oh this is awful what's the matter this morning i burned my hand on the stove i ripped my only pair of nylons my inlay fell out and now you come home work.
7: what are you talking about i'm not drunk and you know it
0: then why are you so nice to me
7: What's the use? When I come home tired, can't smile, she beefs. When I come home and try to be pleasant, she accuses me. Put out the lights.
0: You're not going to bed with your shoes on.
7: Yes, I am. I work like a horse. I might as well sleep like a horse.
0: Why did you bring me a present? What have you been up to, John? Bring his wife a present.
7: Oh, stop it.
0: A husband doesn't bring his wife a present unless he's done something wrong.
7: I've brought you a million presents and I've never done anything wrong. Never Not since the day I married you I wish you'd let me sleep
0: Sure Sleep That's the easiest way out when you've got a guilty conscience.
7: Blanche, I tell you, I haven't got a guilty conscience. Then
0: why did you buy me an expensive present?
7: It isn't an expensive present. It's the crummiest present I could find.
0: I could believe that, all right. What is it?
7: Why don't you open it and see?
0: I bet you've gone and thrown away your money on some stupid thing I can't even use.
7: Oh, you can use it fine.
0: A home beauty outfit.
7: It's got everything, just what you need.
0: Wrinkle cream, freckle remover, hair darkener, false eyelashes, chin reducing strap. What kind of a present do you call this? What are you hinting at?
7: How did I know what was in it?
0: Nobody would use this but a homely woman.
7: Oh, that's not true. All women use it.
0: They do not. Only the homely ones, and I wouldn't touch it.
7: The sales girl in the drugstore said she uses it all the time, and she's not half as homely as you are. What? I mean, you're just as pretty.
0: And that's just about what happened. You walked into a drugstore, saw a pretty face, and didn't know what you were buying.
7: I didn't look at her face at all.
0: If you were going to buy me a present, why didn't you buy me something I could use? Why didn't you get me an ounce of Taboo? What's that? My favorite perfume.
7: Well, you've got a dresser full of perfume. taboo, Sabu, Snafu, Sterno. Enough perfume for any woman alive. Look at those bottles.
0: They're all empty. And it's all your fault. You left the corks out and it evaporated.
7: I leave the cork out of my bourbon, don't I?
0: Well, what about it?
7: That never evaporates.
0: You never give it a chance. I don't see why I should have to do without because of your nasty habits. What do you think makes a thing dry up, John?
7: Wish I knew.
0: Don't be so funny.
7: Oh, I'm not funny. I'm sleepy. You know I worked at the office 18 hours without a let-up?
0: That's what you said you did.
7: That's what I did. I did it for what I thought was a good reason, but now I'm sorry. Why? Forget it.
0: What is it, John? What happened? (gasps) You lost your job.
7: I didn't lose my job. I got two weeks vacation with pay. It's the first vacation I've had in seven years, and I wanted to enjoy it. But no, you wouldn't stand for that, would you?
0: How can you say that, John? Of course I want you to enjoy yourself. Where's the money?
7: In my wallet. Two whole weeks pay. Now, do you mind if I rest?
0: You know, John, I haven't had a vacation either. A change of scene will do us both a world of good. If you're so tired, there's only one thing in the world for you to do. He's doing it. Where did he say that money was? Oh, here it is two weeks pay.
7: Blanche, put that money back.
0: Oh, I I thought you were sleeping, dear.
7: What were you doing with that money? What's the matter, Blanche?
0: I'm not doing anything. I'm just counting it to see if they gave you the right amount.
7: It's the right amount. Put it back and go to sleep.
0: You needn't talk like that. I wasn't going to steal it.
7: Who said you were? Just
0: like you to make a crack like that.
7: I didn't make any cracks at all. Go
0: on. Call the police, have me arrested, put me in prison.
7: Nobody's putting you in prison. They'll
0: lock me up in solitary confinement. Rats running all over me in my cell. And I stand helpless, shaking, behind iron bars. No way to escape. Blanche. Oh, why don't you send me a hacksaw, John? You're getting
7: hysterical. Well,
0: don't go accusing me of taking your money. It's half mine anyway.
7: It's all yours. All I want is sleep.
0: I don't see why we can't go away on a vacation for a few days.
7: You go. I told you I'm going to do nothing but sleep for the whole two weeks.
0: You'll have to get up sometime.
7: Not even once.
0: How are you going to collect your unemployment insurance?
7: What unemployment insurance?
0: You're going to be out of work for two weeks.
7: You can't collect unemployment insurance if you've got a job. If
0: you're not working, you haven't got a job, have you?
7: That's different. Why? I don't know why. Nobody does it, that's all.
0: Well, what's the good of unemployment insurance if you don't get any money when you're unemployed?
7: Being on vacation is not the same as being unemployed.
0: Don't tell me. What? Clara's husband, Barney, has never had a job his whole life, and he collects his unemployment check every week.
7: He can't collect any checks if he doesn't work.
0: I thought you said they only pay you when you don't work.
7: That's right, but you have to work before you can be out of work so you have a legitimate claim for the money you earn that you don't get.
0: I don't get it.
7: Oh, leave me alone.
0: And I'm telling you now, John, you've got two weeks off, and you're going to do one of two things. Do you hear me? I hear you. Either you start collecting your unemployment insurance, or else you fill in those two weeks with another job.
7: Another job? This is my vacation.
0: I don't care. It won't hurt you to work those two weeks. And we could use the money.
7: Okay, I'll get another job in the morning.
0: You say it, but you won't do it. Do it now. What? Go on, get up, get a job, you loafer.
7: What kind of a job can I get at 2 o'clock in the morning?
0: What's the matter with being a night watchman?
7: I won't do it. I won't do it. You've got no right to deprive me of my two weeks off. I don't care what happens, I won't get another job.
0: All right, then. Promise you'll take me away on a vacation.
7: There's no way out. I promise.
0: Will you swear?
7: Every minute that we're away.
0: I know where we'll go. Lake Tahoe. I'll only have to buy a few more dresses and you can wear your dungarees all the time. Okay. Just tell them you came in from fishing. And if it gets cold, I've got just the thing. Let me show you what I picked up on sale yesterday.
7: I don't want to see it. Just
0: look at this, John. Isn't it stunning?
7: What's so stunning about a bath rug?
0: It's a fur cape, silly.
7: Well, where's the fur?
0: Well, that's the way it's supposed to look. It's the very latest style. Sheared beaver.
7: Sheared beaver?
0: It's been clipped. So have I. You have not. This is worth every penny, John. You know I'm a good judge of furs.
7: Oh, sure. The past two years, you bought a bald mink and a plucked skunk.
0: Well, what's wrong with them?
7: The mink stinks and the skunk drunk. Blanche, how much did you pay for this one?
0: Only $94.
7: $94? Oh, Blanche, you didn't. Get that money back, you hear me? Get that money back. Don't
0: get hysterical. As soon as the... Blanche,
7: how could you do this to me? I deny myself everything. I've been sewing heels on your old pocketbooks and wearing them for shoes. I've been eating the padding out of my overcoat shoulders to save on breakfast cereal. I don't even drink my bourbon anymore. I just chew the cork and hit myself on the head with the bottle. I never spend a nickel on myself.
0: You bought a bag of popcorn yesterday.
7: That wasn't popcorn. My teeth fell out from malnutrition. I'm warning you, Blanche. Blanche, you're not going to get away with it. What do you want? Hello, Bickerson? This is Mr. Guernsey. Yes. uh, Oh, hello, Mr. Guernsey. I hate to be calling you at this hour, Bickerson, but something very urgent has come up. What happened? I just received word that our Chicago plant burned down, and we weren't covered. This morning, I filed bankruptcy proceedings, and I'm closing up for good. What? I trust you'll find a new position, and I do wish you good luck. Well, uh, thanks. By the way, Bickerson, would you mind sending back that two-week salary I gave you? I need every penny I can scrape together yeah um sure. I'll send it. Uh, goodbye. Well, did you hear that, Blanche?
0: No, what was it?
7: My boss, Mr. Guernsey, I lost my job.
0: <gasps> wonderful.
7: Wonderful. What's so wonderful about it?
0: Now you can collect your unemployment insurance. Oh, Blanche. Good night, John.
2: To the right.
7: program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.